0: chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, I want to take a look at verse 9, but I'd like to read the entire portion of scriptures there, starting at verse 1. I need to uh, speak quickly tonight because I have a friend here, and she has to leave early, so I have to get her toll off before she leaves. Now, I'm, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, Miss Jackie, Okay. Romans chapter uh, 12, starting with verse 1, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, declares, I beseech you therefore, brethren, he's talking to Christians, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. In verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace which is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy, According to proportion of faith or ministry, let us wait on our ministering or he that teaches teaching or he that exhorted on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. In verse nine, and this is the verse that we're going to be taking a look at tonight. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cleave to that which is good. The Darwin Awards uh, are bestowed upon uh, tongue-in-cheek, by the way, uh, the least involved human beings for acts of stupidity. It kind of reminds me of the television show, the, uh, the America's Dumbest Criminals or whatever, and each year has several winners, and I'd just like to, to kind of just share these with you, a few of them. Uh, a teenager ended up in the hospital to recovery, uh, recovering from a head injury, uh, a serious head injury uh, he received from an oncoming train So when they asked him how he got the injuries, the young man told the police that he was trying to see how close he could get his head to the moving train without getting hit. He was a winner, by the way. (laughs) The Ann Arbor uh, News in Michigan reported that a man walked into a Burger King early one morning, flashed a gun, and demanded cash. The clerk turned turned him down because he said he couldn't open the cash register without a food order. And so the the clerk told the would-be robber, you'll have to order breakfast first. So the man looked at the menu and said, well, I'll have the onion rings. And so the clerk replied, well, sorry, onion rings aren't available available for breakfast. That's a lunch item. So the robber got frustrated and turned away and just walked off. And so... (laughs) But he was—he didn't get lunch or money, by the way, or breakfast. But uh, he was a winner. A female shopper uh, exited a New York uh, convenience store, and a man ran up to her, ran up to her, and grabbed her purse. She immediately dialed 911 and 911 and gave a detailed description of the purse snatcher. Within minutes, the police apprehended the guy. They put him in the car and drove a few blocks back to where the, the store was, and the lady was waiting, by the way. The thief was taken out of the police car and told to stand still so they can make a positive identification. He immediately said, The thief says, Yes, sir, officer, that's the woman. <laughs> well, he was also a winner. Well, let me give you one more. And this is kind of hard to believe. It kind of reminds me of something from the Three, the three Stooges, okay? So, uh, this is over in Australia. So, a bus driver who was transporting uh, 20. Uh, Patients from a mental hospital, taking them to another mental hospital in another city, stopped on the way for a drink, by the way, which is illegal by the law, according to law, and by his company uh, regulations. So while inside, he's only in there for a few minutes, all 20 patients got off the bus (laughs) and left. So he gets back to the bus, he sees the bus is empty, he says, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? So he didn't want to admit, own up to what he had done, so he went to a nearby bus stop And offered everyone waiting there for a ride okay so then he delivers all 20 patients or would-be patients to the mental hospital but first he whispered to the medical staff he says now be careful because these people actually think they're normal and live in normal lives by the way so the deception was actually it took three days to be uncovered to realize that these people were not actually the mental patients now I'm not sure who gets the award for this one, by the way, the medical staff uh, who couldn't figure it out, or the people who took three days to prove that they were sane, and that might be a tough one, by the way, it might be a tough one for you and I, so let's not laugh too hard about that. Well, how would you explain that, by the way, Uh, what would you tell the the staff, look, I'm not supposed to be here, Uh, I was just standing at a bus stop and this guy came up offered me a free ride, so I'm always willing to... Save a few coins here and there so I took the free ride and here I am I really do work for IBM or I really do own a home in downtown Charleston or I really am a college student somewhere Uh, what what would you say to prove your sanity well maybe it would take three days or maybe the medical staff might have the right to be suspicious but (laughs) for some of us but suppose you had to prove to someone that you are a Christian. How long would it take to prove to someone that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would it take uh, uh, three hours or three days or three weeks? And what would you say to prove it? You might say, well, I attend church. I, uh, I, I have a Bible and, and, I, uh, and I know the Bible starts with Genesis and ends in the book of Revelation. Revelation. Uh, I don't think that would prove anybody, anything to anybody. Uh, You might say, look, I'm a Christian, uh, because you might not believe it, but Christ saved me by his grace through faith, and that might be a little little better. But according to the Apostle James, the declaration that we have saving faith is not as critical to a watching world as the demonstration of a saving faith. We We could gather in this church auditorium, every day out of the week, and we can declare to whoever will listen that we've been born again, and we can go outside and carry signs, Bible verses, and quote Bible verses, but that would not provide any real evidence to anybody to a world that is in desperate need of an authentic demonstration of Christianity. What they need, a lost and dying world need to see from us, is this. I belong to Jesus Christ. You watch me, if you will, and I'll demonstrate my faith by my life because I'm pursuing God-likeness, and we call that godliness. Well, what is godliness, by the way? And that's defining godliness is kind of like trying to define sanity. Everyone seems to have a different definition for it, and that's why it's, it's, it's critical, critical for us to have a clear understanding of Romans chapter 12 here. And so in the book of Romans, the apostle moves from the declaration of Christianity in chapters 1 through 11 to a demonstration of Christianity in chapter 12 throughout the entire book, the rest of the book. But let's look at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. cleave to that which is good. This verse here, Romans 12, 9, reveals to us the authentic demonstration of God's character. You know, that is the way that we know that we can, we've been on the right bus, so to speak, and that we're headed down the right road. And in the last few verses of this chapter, Paul will deliver in, uh, in rapid-fire delivery, one statement right after another that defines authentic godly living, and you can't miss it here. It's plain as day. You don't need to outline it. Here it is. You can read it for yourself. The problem we have with this is uh, not that the, that you know we believe it, right? We believe God's word. We believe that to be true. But a lot of times we refuse to demonstrate it, to act it out in our lives. Well, what is godliness, by the way? Well, Romans chapter twelve, verse nine delivers three. Short statements which begin begin Paul's inspired thoughts of godliness here in verse 9. So this is what Paul writes. He says, love without hypocrisy, okay? Love without hypocrisy. You know, it's a little wonder that Paul would start with love. What did he write? What's the love chapter of the whole Bible? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Turn there in your Bibles. Let's read that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, Thirteen, And look at verses 1 through 3. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the, speaking to the church at Corinth. He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but do not have love, I have nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Then Paul, he goes on to describe the actions of love and ends with his thoughts saying this in verse 13, drop down to verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13 he says, Now, but now faith, hope, love abide uh, these three. But the greatest of these is what? The greatest of these is love. Well, why is love the greatest, by the way, of these three that Paul mentions? Well, faith won't last forever. One day it will cease to exist. One day. Faith will be turned into sight. Hope will also one day be gone, uh, done away with. However, love will last forever. So in Paul's, turn back to Romans chapter 12, so in Paul's list of actions that demonstrate authentic godly living, it makes sense that in Romans chapter 12, his greatest, highest, eternal quality will be listed first, and that is love. He says... Verse 9, Romans 12, he says, love like this, love without without hypocrisy. Now, that word hypocrisy comes from a Greek word. That's where we get our word hypocrite from, right? It's a reference to Greek actors. Now, remember in Paul's day, uh, in Paul's generation, there were no elaborate movie sets, okay, no costumes and no lighting, no props. No background scenery. Instead, the actors would carry these little masks so the audience could tell what was happening on the stage. You know, whether the character was acting out something tragic or acting out something comic or something melodramatic. So the actor walked about the stage uh, carrying his little mask. But Paul was saying, in effect, here in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Do not put up the mask of love and yet be unloving in your actions. He says, do not be an actor who's playing the role of a lover while acting otherwise. He says, lay your hypocrisy aside. Take down the mask. Kind of reminds me what D.L. Moody said about this. Uh, He talked about some Christians who used to say they're always talking about cream but living skim milk. And sometimes people talk a good game but their actions demonstrate something different. But Paul says take down the mask and love and live for real. Now the Greek word here for love, there's several words that mean love, but the Greek word here that Paul is is using to describe love is the word agape. And you've heard that word, you've heard that term before. It it, it was a word that was often um, spurned by secular writers in Paul's day. They thought that word was boring. They would rather use other words like eros, for uh, sexual love, or philia, for brotherly love, brotherly affection, or sore, which meant parental love, but they didn't like to use the word agape. Agape love was, uh, was considered cold and unfeeling. The truth is, agape love was the word for an intellectual commitment. In other words, a person with agape love decides to do something it's something volitional it's an act of the will by the way okay it was the decision of the will to give your life for the best interest of your object of your agape love whoever it might be a young man may tell a young woman that he loves her and uh and he will and he would want her for a wife not for a night that's erotic love that's eros but agape love means that I want this person to be my wife for a lifetime, forever. That's an act of commitment, an act of the will. Okay? I have decided that. That's what agape means. And agape, used, Paul uses that word agape as love for keeps. You know, Chuck Swindoll, he's kind of a, uh, he, he tells a lot of good stories. He's an excellent preacher, by the way. But he has a lot of good illustrations and I really enjoyed reading a lot of his books. But he says that sometimes when he'd perform wet weddings, he would compare the different kinds of love that we just briefly mentioned a few moments ago as, as he just talks to the couple standing there in their, you know, the tuxedo and all the bridal and all these other stuff, the regalia that cost the arm and a leg for somebody to get married. But anyway, so the couple would be here standing at the altar, and he tells them, you're here today not because you fell in love or you fell anywhere else, you're here today, this entire wedding has nothing to do with somebody falling in love, with you falling in love with each other. And they would probably look at him kind of odd, like, what in the world is he talking about? Sure, we love each other, that's why we're here. But, uh, and they probably were asking, why Why, why, why we get this guy to do our wedding if he's talking all this stuff? Why should we be here? Is he trying to talk us out of it? But then Swindoll would quickly add, you have planned this wedding, this moment, because you have chosen. To love one another. That is what the word agape means, by the way. An agape is a love that has made up its mind. There's no hypocrisy there. There's no acting. It is for keeps. It's the same way in the church. It's a love that's real. There's no fooling. There's no faking. There's no acting. You're not driven by emotion or fever or fantasy. You have chosen to walk into the Christian family with your, wi- your eyes wide open, okay? This is not love defined. This is love demonstrated for all the world to see. And Paul says, love each other like that, without hypocrisy, with agape love. And this is the greatest demonstration of godliness I can think of. And In fact, Jesus Christ would say, he said the same thing to his disciples when he said... In John 13, 35, he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you, what? Love one another. If you agape love one another. Do you know why he he said that? He just told us here in John 13, 35, is the world now has the, the ability to determine whether you're godly or not by the way you treat other believers, by the way. And Jesus would say this by this, all men would know that you are following after me. And this is is tantamount to saying following, following after the character of God, which is to say pursuing godliness. Everyone is going to know whether you're a genuine, whether you're the real deal or not, by the way you make up your mind to love one another, to look out for each other's interests to serve each other well how do you think the first century church made out by the way they did quite well compared to today's standards by the way uh meniscus felix a roman attorney living during that time the second generation of the roman church says they love each other even without being acquainted with each other have you ever noticed that maybe you'd be somewhere and you say. Well, that person, you know, thats sure, something I don't know, something about that I kind of like, you know, they like to be around them. And you find out they're Christian, and then you just kind of have that special bond. Has that ever happened to you? Sure. Well, Felix would also go on to say, if you can imagine this, they don't even know anything about each other, but as soon as they discover they each belong to Christ, they instantly are committed to each other. And that's a powerful testimony, isn't it? that other people can see that believers are committed to one another, to the body of Christ. The uh, Roman emperor uh, of the uh, 4th century, Julian, who hated Christ, he said this in derision of Christians, their teacher has implanted the belief in them that they are all related. And hey, he's he's true, right? He's telling the truth. Believers uh, in Christ are all related, okay? And the principal characteristic of godliness is love, one for another. Well, what's the price of godliness? We talked about uh, love and, and all that. Is, but what, what is the price for godliness? It's kind of a two-sided coin here in verse, in verse 9. One is negative and the other is positive. Now, notice the negative part in verse 9. He says, Abhor what is evil. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. Right here in verse 9. Abhor what is evil it's a it's a strong term a strong word that can be translated hate or loathing one translator says it's like this uh translates it like this regard evil with horror regard evil how do you look at evil by the way are you horrified from it or you just pull up a seat beside it by the way but this one translation i i think is very good and, and kind of kind of blew me away a little bit as I was reading it and doing study, study, studying this passage to regard evil with horror. Now another translation, the Williams translation, emphasized the present tense of this participle by translating it to read, you must always turn in horror from what is wrong. That's, that's an action thing. You continually do that. You turn from evil. You continually do that. You make it a practice in your life. Oh, well, you might be wondering, well, what? Why would the Apostle Paul need to tell Christians, need to tell believers to hate evil, to abhor sin? Because the truth remains that becoming a Christian doesn't automatically mean you're going to hate sin, by the way. In fact, one of the traps for the Christian today is that we're surrounded by so much evil and sin that we get used to it, we get comfortable with it. Martin Luther the great reformer of the 16th century said this in his commentary on romans this is what he says we are even as believers inclined to do what is evil first we tolerate sin right it ain't no big deal then we accept it and then we embrace it and that's why paul writes this here in verse 9 and sometimes christians will even approve of evil Christians, we we tend to manage it, not abhor evil. We, as believers, sometimes schedule time for evil. We flirt with evil and we see how close we can get to that flame of evil without getting burned. We don't want to criticize or we don't want to offend it. We want to dialogue with it and we want to talk it over. We reassure evil that we're not judgmental and that we're different. Sometimes we buy a ticket to see evil or to pay monthly dues to see evil. We applaud when evil wins the girl, or when evil seduces a man, or when evil gets away with his crimes. Sometimes we give evil our business card, and we invite it to call. Sometimes we log on to evil. Sometimes we lust after evil, and fantasize about evil things, and decide to meet some evil someplace in some time. Sometimes we walk through the door of evil or we subscribe to it or we sign up for it. Sometimes we sit with evil and laugh at it's stories. We hide evil. We try to manage evil. In our secret world, we plan in our evil minds and play with evil in our hearts. And this is what it means, by the way, to be headed in the wrong direction, to catch the wrong bus like those mental patients got, those patients got on, the the people got on the, the wrong bus headed to the mental ward. You know... If we find ourselves engaging in thoughts and actions, as I just described, we're heading on the wrong road. We're heading in the wrong direction. We're not on the road to godliness. We're on the road to godlessness. And so do you know why Paul wrote this to Christians? I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. because, And this is what he says. Uh, and he even penned this down. He put this in writing, by the way. He says there are times when my imagination has taken me down to the sewers of the earth. Sometimes when I feel the most devoted to God and the most earnest in prayer, it often happens that at that very moment the plague breaks out the worst in me. You know, sometimes as Christians, we go the wrong path. We get on the wrong bus. We headed down the wrong road. And then we have to figure out, well, how am I going to explain this? Wherever it ends up. Paul would tell us that part of the pursuit of godliness uh, begins with thinking differently about sin. And this is the process of becoming godlike or godly. When we are godly, we develop a horror or a distaste or hatred for sin. In a book of illustration, Leslie Flynn tells of a story of a wise mother who was peeling vegetables for a salad when her daughter, her college-age daughter, was home and was casually talking about going to a movie that was questionable later that evening. And so without saying a word, the mother picked up a handful of garbage and dropped it into the mixing bowl with that salad and just kept right on stirring, right on mixing. And the girl, of course, was shocked. Mother, you're putting garbage in the salad. I know, she replied. But I thought if you allowed a little garbage in your mind, you wouldn't mind a little garbage in your stomach. How true that is. Now, we laugh at that l- illustration, but that describes us many times, right? What kind of evil have we allowed in our lives? We just kind of mix it all together. We think it's all right. When it, Paul says we're to hate, we are to abhor evil, we are to abhor sin, um, the New York Times ran an article several years ago uh, about aerosol propellants uh, with a chemical in it that uh, was used in spray cans of, of household cleaners and, and this toxic when improperly used uh, would actually kill people. Teenagers and college age kids would, would uh, spray this into a bag and then huff it up what they call it and at least you know one person died and many more were seriously ill. And so the company put a, a, a warning uh, label on the product, and they, would say, they said this, death or serious injury if this product is inhaled. Now, we think that that would deter people, right? The consequences of that action would deter people. No. Still the liability claims kept coming in, and finally the company brass, the bigwigs, and the attorneys all got together and came up with a warning that might make a difference. So they suggested making a... La- the label larger and then he said well that probably wouldn't wouldn't work because that means it would probably have more of that chemical that these kids are going after okay but one attorney bright attorney sparked a solution when he says what do people fear more than death or injury and they got to thinking what do you think it is what do people fear more than death or injury how we look we're vain, we're vain that pride that vanity how we look So they devised a new warning. Now, when you get older, you probably don't care as much, right? But when you're young and all that, you want to look pretty and put makeup on and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when you get really older and you look like me, then nothing's going to help you, okay? So (laughs) you just kind of give up and say, oh, well. So so they devised a new warning for this product, and they said that sniffing this product could disfigure their face. Well, a lot of truth to that. Nothing disfigures the face like death, by the way. But... But the new warning said this. Inhaling this product may cause facial disfigurement. And the, the abuse of that product was greatly reduced, by the way. The abusers were not afraid of death. They were not afraid of possible injury caused by this product, this, misusing this product. They were terrified at being disfigured, by the way. Messing up their face. Okay? Now, what terrifies you about sin, by the way? We could list all the sins. we could put them on the screen up there, and we can list all the dirty dozen, or just how many of they are. What is it that, that frightens you about sin? Is, is it the ugly consequences of sin? When I was a little boy, I would smoke cigarettes. OK? I didn't do it. I had an older brother that he was a bad influence. To me. Not, <laughs> not, not, re- not really, not really, OK? Not really. He didn't smoke cigarettes. But I would sneak around. <laughs> I always sneak around sometimes and puff cigarettes, you know, a little, little, bit, little bitty fella. And so, and uh, I got caught one time, and um, it, wasn't, it wasn't pretty. It, it really wasn't, okay? So I thought I was going to get killed that day, all right? So anyway, but that, did that deter me? Did the consequences of that action, of me sinning, uh, disobeying my parents, did that deter me? Not for long, because I tried to figure out how to get around the consequences consequences that affect me and many times the consequences for sin doesn't affect us okay we keep right on doing what we do by the way is it the ugly consequence of sin that terrifies us the exposure the loss the disease the, the uh, addiction the uh, death now i think it's important to note what paul says he does not say that the person who is pursuing godliness or pursuing a transformed life it whores or hates the consequences of sin. What it does say, he says, we're to hate the sin. Not necessarily the consequences, but the actual sin. That makes a difference, right? If I hate the sin, I'm less likely to do it. Because I try to figure out how to get around consequences, and you do too, right? Paul says that this person that's pursuing godliness and righteousness is to abhor or hate that sin. You know, and and that's the process of becoming godly. And it's evidenced by the development of hatred for sin itself, no matter what the consequences may be. And the principal quality of godliness, of course, it starts with love. The price of godliness is the exclusion of or staying away from or the hatred of sin. However, many Christians are not willing to pay that price. We need to say that we're not getting anywhere near that bus that's going to take us near sin. Now, one church leader said this years ago. He said this, yes, we call out to God for deliverance from the tempestuous tumist- waves of temptation, but we're to also row away from the rocks. And that describes us sometimes. Yeah, we won't be delivered from something, but we hang around the same place and don't do anything different. Well, let's flip the coin over and let's notice the positive aspect of this price that we must expend if we're to become godly. He says, first, we're to abhor what is evil, right? That's what verse 9 says. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor that which is evil, and cleave or cling to that which is good. Okay? You might wonder, well, what is good? Okay. Well, everything you just read in Romans that we read earlier, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, is good. In fact, it's the very same thing that we, we, we read in verse 1 and 2, as your mind is being transformed by the Word of God. Then we'll be able to, as our minds are being able to be transformed by the Word of God, we'll be able to be discerning and discerning what's good and godly, okay? And what is good except good the will of God of course what is acceptable to god and righteous is pure and whatever is acceptable to god and pure is good so paul says we're to cling to good pursue that and you will be pursuing the character of christ now that word cling to is an interesting word it means to be glued to it means to be cemented together or the join firmly to join firmly cling cleave to that which is good you know, the Bible doesn't, doesn't tell us not what to do, stay away from evil. It tells us what to do, to stay close to good. And this is the same word that uh, the Spirit of God reveals to us in Acts chapter 8, where uh, you know, Philip was told to go to the Ethiopian, Ethiopian chariot and join himself to it. That's that same word, join himself to that chariot. Why was he to do that? So he could share Christ with the Ethiopian eunuch, by the way. In other words, this, uh, Philip was to get in that chariot and he was to go in the same direction as the Spirit of God was leading him. And this is also the same verb that you discover in the Greek Old Testament, which describes what a man does when he marries a bride. He's to do what in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? He's to leave his mother and father and cleave, that's the same word, and cleave or cling to his wife. The man becomes one with his wife. His wife becomes his priority relationship. His mother and his father no longer have priority in his life. It's his wife. Everything and everyone else takes second place to that marital union. And the husband and wife are cemented together or glued together. And this is a picture of the believer in good or the believer in godliness. The believer is to be cleaving to the good, cemented to the good, desirous of good above everything And everyone else. Anything that is not good is not to stick to our hands. It's not to stick to our hearts. But everything that is good and godly is to stick to us like that cement, like that glue. In other words, Paul is pretty much saying that the believer who desires to be godly will avoid evil and be attached to that which is good. Now, let's go ahead and wrap this up. How How do we apply this? Well. Uh, I want to just go over two principles of application. The principal characteristic of godliness is not optional; it's essential. Okay, without love, you cannot demonstrate godliness. Y'all agree with that? Without true agape love, you cannot demonstrate godliness to a world, to the world in which we live. The price of godliness is not partial; it is comprehensive. Okay. Uh, what about somebody said, "Well, I'm good in every area, but this." That's what, Paul is not talking about that, okay? It's not nine out of ten or two out of three. God wants our entire lives to be turned over to him in godliness. Not partial, but comprehensive. He wants everything of our life. He wants every room of our house, by the way. Everything that is evil, he tells us in verse 9, we're to avoid. Everything that is good, we're to cling to. And the pursuit of godliness involves everything you are, everything you have, and everything you do. You know, we sing it sometimes, but do we recognize the comprehensive nature of the godly call? How's that hymn going? I'm not going to sing it for you. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Do we really mean that? Are we just singing words? I fear sometimes we're just singing words. And Haitian uh, Haitian pastor from uh, the early 1900s, he uh, uh, illustrated this to his congregation. Uh, he was talking about the, the, the need for a total pursuit of Christ-likeness with nothing held back, absolutely nothing. So he, to- he tells a story, he, to- he told a story of a man he knew who wanted to sell a house for $2,000. And another man badly wanted this house but couldn't afford it. He couldn't afford the full price. So after much haggling over the price, the owner agreed to sell, half the, uh, sell the house for half the, the asking price uh, with one stipulation. Okay, He would retain ownership over one small nail protruding out just over the front door. And the man said, that's a good, a good deal. I'll, I'll take that deal. So after several years, the original owner wanted the house back, but the other man refused to sell the house. So they had settled on the price, and he owned uh, the house, all except for one nail. So the first guy, the first owner, he went out, and he found uh, a carcass of a dead dog. And he hung it from the single nail. Now, he owned the nail, by the way. That was his nail. The, the rest of the house belonged to somebody else. But that nail he owned. He hung it over the door, and what do you think happened? It didn't take long before the house became... Uh, and, unhabitable, and the family didn't want to live there. So the family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. Now, the Haitian pastor, this is a very good illustration by the, the Haitian pastor, went on to illustrate that giving ourselves to Christ must be that comprehensive. It must involve everything in our lives. We dare not leave out one small nail for the enemy to control We must give our entire house to Christ. And I believe that's the message of Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Love comprehensively. Hold nothing back. Abhor evil. Hate evil. Not most of it, okay? Not just a few things, but hate it all. Clean the house and get rid of everything, by the way. Do not even leave the smallest nail for the enemy to manipulate. You won't imagine what Satan can do in your life if you give him that foothold of that one small nail in your heart. He says, cling to what is good. Not, this is not a passing fancy, by the way. Cling to what is good. This is not a one-night stand. This is a wedding. This is a marriage where God is your witness and you cleave to what is good. If we're able to do that, we'll be able to ride along that road that is marked, demonstrated by godliness. And if you and I can apply these principles in our life, we can change our life. We can change our home. We can change our church in the world in which we live in. Think about this verse that we talked about tonight. It's very simple. And I've read over it many times before. But until I just started to study and start take a look at this, what does this really mean to me, not Keith or not somebody else, but what does this actually mean? Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to that which is good. Norman, and I don't know where you're at tonight, and I don't know what you need to do, but if you're here tonight without Jesus Christ, don't go home without him. Norman.